All right, so we are, I'm trying to land the plane with Kings. <clears throat> I won't do it this week, but it will be by next week. Um, so this week we're in 2 Kings chapter 18. Looking at King Hezekiah, who was a rare, rare, exceedingly rare bright spot in First and Second Kings. The guy who did the right things. It's amazing. So we're going to look at him, we'll be encouraged, uh, and then I'll help us navigate uh, through not getting the wrong lesson from Hezekiah, but getting the right one. Um, so this is following... Ahaz, or King Ahaz in Judah, his terrible run as king of Judah, his son Hezekiah takes the throne from him, which I think really helps you understand how remarkable this is. We tend to kind of go the way of our fathers, and that has been the trend in Israel and in Judah. Wicked king produces wicked sons who make wicked kings who produce wicked sons, and on and on and on down. And here we have an exceedingly wicked king, Ahaz, who defiled the temple, was doing child sacrifice, replicated a, a, a pagan altar and built it in front of the temple, and then emptied the temple of its treasures and destroyed all the instruments of worship. Bad news. His, this is his son. And somehow Hezekiah grows up different. And we're not told why, but this is an amazing thing. This is astounding. Um, if you had a bad father or mother, you know how hard it was to pull out of the, the, the gravitational pull of how they raised you. And this is the story of Hezekiah. So let's look at chapter 18, verses 3 to 8. It says, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him, Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. So that's the author of King's summary of Hezekiah. Two thumbs up from him. It's a re we, we should just have a party right now because if you've been getting a little frustrated, you're, you're right and you should be frustrated at all these kings who have just failed one after another. This is during the, during the fourth year of Hezekiah's reign that Assyria captured Samaria, Israel, and took Israel into exile. So if you're trying to keep track of your timeline, that's where we are with Hezekiah. We're right here in the fourth year of his reign is when Israel went into exile, okay, which we've already covered. So this new king is surprisingly godly, but let's see what happens when he's tested, right? Because he's doing the right stuff at the beginning. And we've seen this story. We've seen people start right, like Solomon, and end poorly. So what about when Hezekiah is tested? What's he going to do? That's the question. 
Judah has enjoyed the fact that Assyria has been distracted fighting Babylon. That's always nice when your enemies are fighting with each other and they forget about you for a minute. That's kind of what's happened. They've had a minute to breathe. But now Assyria's attention returns to Judah. And apparently Hezekiah has not been cooperating with Assyria. They do this thing where they come and they threaten you. And then you pay them off. And then they leave you alone for a while. Well, Hezekiah started talking to Egypt, saying, hey, can you help us out with Assyria? And Assyria is not a fan. They don't want him to do that. That's not, that's not okay with them. And this causes conflict. Assyria invades Judah and takes all of their fortified cities. That's bad news. That means all of their, their hubs, their military hubs are now taken. They're in a bad, bad position. Hezekiah tried to appease Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, by offering him the temple treasury, as so many kings have done before. And Sennacherib sent a small group of messengers to enter Jerusalem and confront Hezekiah in person. This is a fascinating, kind of entertaining story in there where this payoff doesn't work. And instead, this big, bad, scary enemy sends three guys in to Jerusalem confront the king and this is what they say this is the leader of this little gang of messengers is Rab Shakak. I'm going to get his name wrong a hundred times I'll say it right the first time and then from here on out just give me a pass all right Rab Shakak is the leader of the group of in Assyria and he does all the talking he's very intimidating and very annoying all right so in chapter 18, 19 to 26, we see 26, he claims to also be a follower of Yahweh. And apparently this is a typical tactic of Assyria. They would go to these uh, polytheistic cultures, go into the city and say, yeah, we, 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 follow, we worship the same gods as you. And let me tell you, they told us that this God is really mad at you, but we'll help you. Just let us in. But this doesn't work with them because they're not polytheistic. It doesn't work, so he speaks to the soldiers on the wall to discourage them. So imagine, picture the scene here. you got these three scary Assyrians. If they're mad and they go back and tell their king, then probably Judah is going to fall completely. And he doesn't get anywhere with Hezekiah by lying to him and trying to deceive him. So instead, he turns and begins to speak to all the scared soldiers standing on the wall, waiting for these Assyrians to come in. I mean, the Assyrians were the worst of the worst. They would do things like take all the dead bodies of the people they killed and pile them up as a ramp. You can read about this in history books. And pile them up and make a ramp out of them to go over their wall into the city as a threat, as sort of an advertisement of how evil and violent they are. These are the people knocking at the door. Scary people. So this is the speech he makes, verses 28 to 36. Then Rob Shaka stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh by saying, Yahweh will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, 
For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me, and then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hina, and Ivah? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But the people were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. I mean, that's strong. He stands there speaking to his enemy's soldiers, and he says, don't listen to Hezekiah. He says, God will deliver you. Give me one example of another nation whose God delivered them from me. I have conquered everyone. Nobody's God has been able to stop me and my army. Why would you think that you would be any different? Not only that, but I promise you that if you come out and make peace with me, I will take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. Doesn't that sound exactly like God's promise to Israel? The king of Assyria is making himself into a god to them. And he's saying, you're following the wrong god. My god is the winner, the strong one, the bold one. Don't you want to end up on the right side of history? Follow me. I'll make your life great. And if you don't follow me, I will absolutely destroy you. And I have a very long track record to prove to you of what I can do to you. You ever feel that way? I think it's like the voice of Satan. You ever feel this, you know, you're confronted with a difficult situation and this kind of voice comes in your head and says almost exactly this word for word? Why would you think God's going to come through for you? Just follow this way or that way and you'll get all the stuff you want. You get all your needs met, and if you don't, your life will come to absolute ruin. And you have this very dramatic thing going on in your head, right? That just makes perfect sense. This is absolutely familiar to me. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. Wow. So now Hezekiah is being tested, right? Is he really righteous? Is he really a good king? Or is he going to cave under this enormous pressure? All of our, ba- all of our places of attack and military might have been destroyed and compromised. We are down to this little, tiny city, and they have just come literally knocking on our door and threatened us and offered us a way out. Is he going to take it? Is he going to empty the temple and say, come right on in, you can have us, we'll be, I'll be your servant, 
or is he going to trust God? Will he trust God? I'll, I know the suspense is killing you. For the first time in, I think, by my count, about 300 years, a king kneels before God and prays for help. Imagine it for a minute. Three, how long is 300 years? Not one king has been willing to bow down before God and say, God, help us. Think about all the kings, if you've been following along for the last 22 weeks, think about all the kings you've seen fail to do this. Think about how they did not pray or even seek the insight of the prophets, and sometimes they actually resisted the prophets and tried to kill them. Think about how many times they did not ask or receive the wisdom of priests who were telling them, just worship God, follow God, ask God for help. Stop worshiping idols. Just ask God for help. And they refused over and over and over again. They sold their worship to the highest bitter, bitter and the scariest bully on the block every time. Then finally, here's a king, a son of an idolater and a child sacrificer. He does the right thing in the face of certain destruction. So here's his prayer. Verse 14 and 19, he says, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of Yahweh and spread it before Yahweh. Takes the letter, that threat that I just read, and he lays it out before God. And Hezekiah prayed before Yahweh and said, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. That's astounding, given the context. He's saying, you're the only one. You made all of this. Verse 16, incline your ear, O Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, O Yahweh, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Yahweh, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Yahweh our God, save us, please, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Yahweh, are God alone. Goodness gracious. Oh, that some other king would have done this 300 years ago, right? This simple, simple truth. There's one God, and all the other ones are not gods at all. They are nothing. They are inventions by people's hands. And they mean nothing. If you throw them into the fire, they burn up and they're gone. And he says, God, rescue us so that everyone will know that you're the only true God. And what's great here is God actually replies. <laughs> it's also amazing. Because God has been speaking through prophets this whole time. He's been speaking judgment. And here we have a reply that's a little different. 2 Kings 19, 20 to 28. 
The prophet Isaiah is active at this point in their history. And so Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. So now he's speaking, God is speaking to Assyria, right? She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. So picture it for a minute. God, mighty God, the only God. Big, strong, mighty, sovereign over everything. He's standing there. And... Judah, this young girl, standing behind him, going, mm, <laughs> wagging her head. I hate you. I don't like you at all. And guess who I told about you? I told him about you and what you're trying to do to us. I told him what you said. I tattled on you to the God. And now you've got to deal with him. That's the picture. Verse 22, whom have you mocked and reviled? <laughs> Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have mocked the Lord and you have said, with many chariots, I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and I dried up the sole of my foot, all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old that now I bring to pass that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins. He says, didn't you know that all of your successes, wicked Assyria, have because I have ordained it, not because you did something. I have used you like an instrument of my wrath and judgment against who I am coming against. And eventually you're going to see, he says, now it's your turn. Don't think it's because of your might and your prowess that you've been so successful he says verse 26 while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded they have become like plants of the field and like tender grass like grass on the housetops blighted before it has grown but i know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. That's something, isn't it? That feels a little different than all the other kings before. And God's responses to them have been, just turn to me. Just ask me for help. Worship me. Acknowledge me as God. This is what I'll do for you. I want to stand between you and your enemy, but you won't have me. Instead, you want to do it all by yourself. Like you're that little 
girl wagging her head, but with no one standing between her and the enemy. It's foolishness. I think we all know where this is going to go. Verse 35 to 37, And that night the angel of Yahweh went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. No trickery, just killed them all. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Asarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. And really, from this point on, we just don't, Assyria is not a, an issue anymore. Babylon's an issue. It comes in a minute. For right now, they're saved. Now here's where I think we can go wrong. Because if you don't consider for a minute the context, the history of what we've read so far, you could come away thinking, Hezekiah somehow earned God's rescue. That there was an exchange here. That he paid like a price with his singular little short prayer and worshiping God, and that God was like, well, okay, all's forgotten. I'll rescue you. That's not what happens here. Think about this for a minute. We have 300 years of rebellion and idolatry snubbing their nose at God over and over and over and over again to the point where it's almost hard to read another about another king who went the wrong way, and another instance where Israel said, sure, we'll go that way. We have no problem with that king. Thanks, you'll save us. And then it fails over and over and over again. Does Hezekiah's single prayer and act of righteousness somehow make up for 300 years of rebellion? Absolutely not. Not by anybody's standard of justice does it make up for that. Think about if you're God. What would you have done? You've been sitting there for 300 years being insulted over and over and over and over again. And then one guy says, okay, I guess I'll do what you say. Does the bare minimum of what you've asked him to do all along, how would you feel? Would you say, sure, all's forgotten? I sure wouldn't. I'd be like, well, you're going to have to do that a few more times. How about another 300 years of obedience? And that'll level it out a little. When Judah disobeys God and runs off to worship false gods and sells its soul to protect its life, God not only refuses to protect them, but he actually sends wicked nations to attack them. That's true. When Judah obeys God, worships God, and chooses to honor God in the face of certain death, God does bless them and rescue them. But there's more to that story, right? There's that 300 years problem. If you imagine... The scales of justice. You've seen those little statues with the lady who holds the scale. It's a metaphor for justice. It's a good one. You're supposed to balance the scales. Someone does something wrong that's putting something evil on one side of the scale and it tips the scale. And then justice is about right the punishment fitting the crime. That's what we mean by that. You put a punishment 
a righteous thing on the, on the other side of the scale and you balance it. You don't want to go too far. Now you're doing a wicked thing. Right? You're overreacting. So you want it to be perfectly even. And that, that's a good goal. The problem is what we have put on and what Judah has put on the scale on the wicked side has an eternal weight to it. There's, there's no balancing it. By obeying God, Hezekiah has not earned God's favor. When you see this in context, you realize that this is an incredible display of God's mercy. That God somehow puts his thumb on the scale, so to speak. That God would hear Hezekiah's prayer at all and then miraculously save Judah should actually shock us. It's part of the point of all the detail that he's put into First and Second Kings, all the failures one after another, is when you get to a moment, even a moment of success, where somebody actually does the right thing, and then God responds with blessing and rescue and grace, you should be shocked that he was so quick to run in and defend them. Why should God listen to them at all at this point? Hezekiah's one act of righteousness does not balance the scales of 300 years of rebellion. Romans 3.23-26 says that God actually passed over the former sins. Speaking of the Old Testament. In order to show his patience. Knowing that Jesus would stand in the place of the sinner and take the wrath of sin on himself. In other words, who has an eternal weight of righteousness that can balance the scales with an eternal weight of sin on the other side? You could pile up all of your righteousness on that side and still not even move it. Same is true for Judah and the same was true for Israel. But who does have an eternal weight of righteousness? Jesus. He's the only one. He's it. And so Paul's answer to this question of, well, how could God be merciful and gracious to these people when before Jesus? He says, well, God is just, just really patient. And he passed over. And he said, okay, I'm going to let that slide for now because all of this is going to get put on Jesus' account. When Jesus dies, he doesn't just take the sin that's happening there in the moment or in the future. He takes all the sin of all those that had faith in God going all the way back to Hezekiah and before. All the sin that God passed over and said, you know what, I'm not going to count this 300 years against you. I'm just glad you're talking to me again. This is how he can do it. Hezekiah exercised, let's be honest, a tiny little bit of faith in God. He just went to the temple by himself, put the letter out in front of God, and said, help, help, please. He said, please, please help. You're God, we get it, we get it. You're God, you're the only one, please help. It's as if Jesus reaches back in time and climbs onto the scales himself. Another way to look at it is that Hezekiah's faith was all God wanted in order to put Judah's sin on the future account of Jesus. And faith is not this feeling 
of God is great. It usually comes with that. But faith is in what he does. Faith is in he prays and he trusts God. He just does what God says. I mean, he was obviously scared to death. I mean, I would be. Those crazy people out there with spears and swords wanting to come in here and kill us all. They've already done it to all our neighbors. I'm scared. Hezekiah was certainly scared. But he obeyed God and he did what God said. I think you can see where this is going. It's no different for you and me, right? Unless you're some kind of narcissist, you are aware of the mountain of guilt on your scales. And you often are fooled into thinking, if I just do one right thing, somehow I can make up for where I fail. Aren't you tempted that I'm today? I'm the only one. I'm tempted all the time to think that way. Well, I feel like a loser. So the way to not feel like a loser is to do some good stuff. And that will, instead of making God the object of the things I do, I just make me, it's all about me and making me feel more righteous. And it never works, not for long. Trying to balance the scales with your own effort. The trouble is that the guilt side of the scale has an eternally heavy weight on it, and you do not possess an eternally weighted righteousness to balance it. So it never quite works. God's not asking you to do that. What he's asking for is faith. And not a lot. A teeny tiny little bit of faith. Faith, it's almost, it's so small, it's almost invisible. So when Jesus talks about the mustard seeds, that's what he's, what he's saying, is it's faith that's so tiny, you, can, you can't see it unless you get up close and go, oh, there's a little mustard seed in your hand. Boy, that is some, that is one teeny tiny seed. That is the smallest seed I've ever seen in my life. This is what God says about your faith. He says, that is the tiniest little faith I've ever seen in my entire life. That is teeny tiny, but it's enough because it's not about the strength of your faith. It's about who your faith is in, right? And this is what Hezekiah does right. It's not, it's not the might of his wisdom or his ability to get things done or to tear down all this stuff that's been there for so long. It's his simple faith in God that God will deliver us. I know where to go with this problem. And it's what distinguishes him from every other king is that he knew where to go. He didn't go to Egypt or Syria or Assyria to rescue him from one of the enemies that was coming against him. Instead, he went to God and he just prayed. So God's asking for your faith, not your faith in yourself, not your faith in your eternally heavy righteousness to balance the scales so that you can go to heaven. Everyone says, when people ask them, how do you know you're going to heaven? People in this country, it's just this belief that if I'm just a good person, in other words, if, the, if I, I, I am good enough, I feel that I have balanced the scales. And maybe on a good day, it sort of leans in my favor a little bit. I give to charity, I do good things, I work hard, I'm a nice person, I let people merge. Go ahead, merge. Go ahead. I'm going to heaven. Everybody's merging. 
It's ridiculous. Because what you don't see is that your sin is as heavy as forever is long. That's how heavy your sin is on the scale. And your righteousness is light as a feather. It will not move it. You need someone whose righteousness is as heavy or as greater than, we should say, your sin. And you only get that in Jesus. No matter how far off God's path you wander, here's another way to look at it, getting away from the scale metaphor. He's always one help me prayer away. I heard this many years ago when I was in college, and it really helped me. Because we, we tend to say, well, I'm on God's path or I'm not, and I'm wandering off his path. I know I'm supposed to be doing this and acting this way and going this way and talking this way and thinking this way. That's the path. I'm supposed to be on it. But I feel like I just wander off it constantly. I get distracted by shiny things over here and over there, and I wander off just like a lost child. And the farther I get off the path, I've got to take that same, I've got to work just as hard to get back to the, on the path. And the truth is, that's not, it's, one, it's just a turn. It's just repentance. God, help me. Help me. I am so far from home. I am so far from your will. I am so far from the path you set me on. I, I don't even know which way to turn to get back in the right place with you. And what God says is just one step back. I know you've walked a thousand miles, but it's one step back. It's the same idea. It's true of Judah and it's true of us. It is this way so that no one can ever think that they are better than anyone else. You don't get to boast because your righteousness can never be heavy enough to outweigh the eternally heavy weight of your sin. Only Jesus gets to boast. That's Ephesians 2.9 and Jeremiah 9.24. So all this being true, we have to be careful when we read about Hezekiah to not remove him from the whole story. And to say, well, if I just do the right things, then all the bad things will be undone. It's not about that. It's about your faith in God. Obedience. Just do what he says. Ask him for help. That's it. That's how you get in to being a Christian. You say, whoa, I'm a mess. I'm way off the path. And I'm so messed up, I can't fix it. I've made some, uh, some valiant attempts, or maybe I haven't tried at all. And I can't fix this. My sin is too heavy. And say, but I see Jesus, and I see he is, his righteousness is big enough to take away my sin, and I will follow him to the ends of the earth. That's what it means to be become, become a Christian, and it's how you walk out your Christian life. Is every time you wander off, you just look at Hezekiah and you go, okay, God help me. I'm going to lay this stuff, all my challenges, the stuff in me and the stuff in my life, I'm going to spread them out. Let's imagine him going to the temple where it's quiet. No one sees him. And he takes that letter from that evil messenger who mocked God and he lays it out before him. And he says, not my circus, not my monkeys, not my problem. This is too big. This is bigger than me. I'm going to lay it out in front of you. And then I'm going to just go, help. Please help me. You're the God. You're it. He's not, my enemy's not, I'm not. You're God, you, I need you to help me. 
And you go, well, that doesn't sound like a lot of work. Well, it's going to be work because you have to obey him. You have to do what he says. That's part of the faith thing. But it's not you trying to weigh down your side of the scale. It's not you trying to map your way back to getting on the right path with God. Get yourself sorted out so that you can make him happy and pleased with you. It's just coming to him and saying, God, here's this thing. Here's this sin that besets my life. I've tried to resist it and change it about me over and over and over again, and it keeps tripping me up every single time. Here's this problem. My finances, I can't get them sorted out, and I try it over and over and over again, and I just fail at it over and over and over again. I can't seem to get any traction in my career, or I have an illness that is going to kill me, and I'm afraid it's going to kill me. It's going to kill somebody I love. What do I do? Help me. All these things that pile up against us, everything from our own sin to the sin of other people, the sin in the world, and it breaks everything, what you do is you bring that to him and you lay it out before him. You say, I can't fix this. This is too big. But I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to go chasing after false idols to fix it. I'm going to lay this out before you, God. I'm just going to let you fix it. Let you deal. This is, I think, the continual challenge to us as Christians. So, sometimes obedience and faith looks very small. I want to tell you that's okay. That's how it is. It might even look like a tiny little prayer. Help. Help. Often the reason we need help is because of our own sin and our foolishness. Maybe 99% of the time. <laughs> you bring it on yourself. So you think, well, I can't go to God with this. I did this to myself. I've got to handle this myself. Go ahead and try. doesn't work. That's when it's important to understand that your obedience is not balancing the scales. Your obedience is just faith in God demonstrated to him. God, I trust you. So I want to invite you, we're going to sing in just a minute, but I want to give you a chance to just respond to God this morning, like Hezekiah. I just love this picture of him. It's been the kind of the enduring kind of mental picture for me as I've been working on this text. It's just him coming to God and laying the thing out before him, saying, okay, here it is. You know what I'm dealing with. Here's the enemy, Right? Whatever your enemies are, here, they, here it is. And God help me. I'm not running over here and running over there to these false saviors, these false idols, these false gods. I'm bringing it to you and I'm laying it before you and I'm asking you to rescue me. And so I want to give you a chance to do that. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to write it down and put it on the stage. We're not getting all like 1990s youth group, okay? Um, but... I do think it would be good for you to come up and just ask God for help yourself. Uh, I don't, you don't need to, if you want to talk to somebody and share, share it with them, confess something to them, we can, we'll have some of our elders up here and people to pray with you if, if you need it. But I don't think you have to. I think if you just want to come up and say, God, 
here's this thing. As, he, as Ben's been talking, there's these enemies in my life, and I want to bring it to you instead of bringing it somewhere else. And bring it to him, and then we'll sing together. So why don't you come on up if you'd like to do that. Lord, here we are with all the weight that we carry spread out before you. Got all the products of our sin and the sins of others. I just piled up and threatening us. we confess our weakness to address them. God, we don't boast in our own strength and our own ability, but we can boast in yours. So God, we agree with Hezekiah who said you are the God, the only God, the only one with a pure and perfect righteousness that is whole has enough weight to cover our sin. And you're the only one with the strength and the power to deal with our enemies. So God, we confess we are in a helpless state. We are not strong. We are not God. You are. So Lord, we put our faith, however small it may be, in you. We trust you. We believe you. 
And God, instead of giving our allegiance to all the false things and the false answers in this world, we give it to you. And we ask you, would you please help us? God, if there's anyone here who's not a Christian, who's never acknowledged you as Lord, confessed you as their king, God, I pray right now that would change. God, their entire life would be turned over to you right now. God, and I pray for anyone here who feels as though they just have wandered off (laughs) in confusion or just passivity, rebellion, hard-heartedness, whatever it is. God, like, like Israel and Judah so many times just wandering, just wandering so far off for so many years. God, would you bring them home right now? Establish their footing right in that place where Hezekiah was, right before you, grounded with his head on straight and his focus on you, humble, desperate for you, willing to do whatever you say. God, bring all of us to that place. God, I ask you to lift burdens, lift the weight. God, help us to see your grace so clearly, even when we do the right things. It's by your grace. Even when we're killing it and connecting all the dots and doing the right stuff and being full of faith, God, it is still by your grace. Help us not to think like Assyria, but to think like Christians. God, I pray that this would be a a relief of false burdens. God, and a reestablishment of our feet our spiritual feet in the right place with you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.